So would the world be better off with more or fewer books by Malcolm Gladwell? <laughs> books by Malcolm Gladwell that also have a lot of good, critical, intelligible, readable responses, that's the best kind of world. Because I think what Gladwell does is he puts arguments out there in clear and communicative ways. Of course, many of his arguments are overstated and they kind of are biased toward particular provocations. And the problem is, is the responses to Gladwell often are in the academy, but they're not necessarily communicated to the larger public. So there's, right. there's a role needed for us to kind of be more publicly engaged. A few hours ago, you tweeted that you were coming on the Young Turks. Before that, your last tweet, I think, was from December 12th or something. Why, <laughs> why didn't you tweet since December 12th? Uh, because um, though Twitter is really helpful for me as a... Um, as a sort of system to access information shared by various people that are that I follow that are interesting to share information or interesting in the share information they share, I personally find it um, kind of unsatisfactory for me in terms of trying to convey in you know such a limited number of characters um, something that I really want to share. So I tend to be a little bit of a perfectionist. Um, I only really want to share. Uh, insights and experiences when I feel like I can really um, stand up for them and give people a lot of context. So, If you had to go live in another country for a few years, not under duress, but you just had to, where do you think you would prefer to live for three, four years? So my wife and I are struggling with that question because we always are talking about or dreaming about living in different other parts of the world, you know. Um, you know, obviously for my career, it would be great to be in a, in a really great, you know, kind of critical European institution. Um, and there's so many interesting um, scholars and activists these days that are coming out of European universities that are looking at um, alternative ways of looking at the Internet and supporting more grassroots ideas around the Internet. Um, however, in the global south, there are also really interesting um, places that we could be. Um, I'm South Asian, so India would be a natural fit. Right. Drink the coconut water, eat nice, healthy, organic, vegetarian food. All of those things sound great to me. Um, but I think increasingly um, we're all um, needing to be aware of how many great um, possibilities there are in um, so much of the world that's been objectified for so long. For me, the answer would be pretty simple. I would go live in Bolivia for a couple of years, and we're going to talk about that. But maybe I should give my guest a chance to catch his breath while I introduce who I'm speaking to here. You got me there. So Dr. <laughs> Ramesh Srinivasan, Associate Professor of Information Studies at UCLA. Yeah. Uh, you've been on the Young Turks in different capacities before. You were a panelist on The Point, and you had a long interview with Cenk, which you can also watch on TYT Interviews. And thank you for coming on again. Glad to have you back. Uh, please tell us in broad strokes a little bit more about your research. Now, I know it's wide and wide-ranging, and we can't go into all of it, but to let the audience know why this is happening and why I'm here, because recently you have done some work in Bolivia, and eventually we're going to narrow down, and that's what we're going to talk about. I spent a lot of time in Bolivia. I care for it a lot, so I was a natural fit to, to get into that part of the interview. So tell us a little bit about, in broad strokes about the nature of your work. Yeah, so, you know, in my past I was, a, I was an engineer and I was um, building software for some years. And, um, and I started to realize not only 
was the process of building software for software's sake or for someone's sake um, sort of not particularly satisfying, but I didn't really know who I was building it for and what the software I was building meant. Um, fortunately, I had an opportunity in graduate school to sort of examine that head on and kind of confront that sort of sort of existential crisis. Um, and I started to realize that many of the tools that um, I was building and we were building uh, weren't necessarily serving the communities that we were attempting to serve mm -hmm. with the software systems we were building. Specifically, I was charged with building uh, virtual communities, which is what we used to call it at that time, um, for refugees from various parts of East Africa, specifically Somalia. And I realized that so many of the assumptions in what I was designing um, um, sort of took, took into account uh, my own ideas of who they were without really building and designing from a more grassroots perspective. So that actually kind of really changed my career where I started to realize that um, in a world with, you know, 7 billion people, maybe 4 to 5 billion of those people are left completely silent from the process of thinking about technology. Um, that was very eye-opening for me. And many of those people are here in the United States as well. Mm. They're not just in Bolivia. They're not just in Somalia. They're not just in the global south. Um, and so that kind of really inspired me to think about how the supposed field site or the place that people go on holiday because it's tropical and beautiful or the Andean mountains could be a new place by which we can imagine technology. Now, so you've done work in many parts around the world, India, of course, New Zealand, I believe, Indonesia. I don't know if you've been to Egypt or just worked on Egypt. We can't get into all of those and follow up on all, all of, uh, of the work that you've done, uh, which is why we're going to bring it down to Bolivia uh, pretty quickly. So you recently had a project in Bolivia. What was the objective? What, what was the nature of your project? The work, in Bolivia? the work in Bolivia? So yeah, I mean, I work all over the world looking at media, right? Studying specifically new technologies, mobile phones, social media, and so on trying to understand what all of this means, right, as, as these tools are spreading worldwide. Um, and there are these sort of notions that um, all it takes is access to technology to be a global citizen or to be economically better off or to be democratic. And we know that's not the case. So how do we rethink that from that perspective? So Bolivia is really, really interesting. Um, um, it's a place that I... Um, was really inspired to go to for many years. And part of the reason was because I have a history of working with indigenous peoples, uh, Native Americans, indigenous peoples in Central Asia. Um, and, I was and I've been really interested for many years in how we can rethink um, databases and algorithms and interfaces and forms of storytelling from the perspective of indigenous peoples. And so Bolivia is very interesting because it's probably the most prominent nation in the world with an indigenous head of state. And it is the only nation in South America with an indigenous head of state, um, Evo Morales, who's Aymara and also has, speaks a little bit of Quechua. Um, but it's also interesting because we're talking about um, the level of politics, right? The level of political power and political movements. And so it's this collision of a social movement, a political movement, and this indigenous identity, um, which is part of what makes Bolivia so interesting. Um, and to my research, Technology and media is so much at the center of the rhetoric that comes out of this regime. So I went over there just interested in trying to understand what this all means. Um, where is this actually consistent? What are some of the gaps in um, rhetoric to what's actually happening on the ground? 
and um, how we can kind of push the conversation further to actually see how technologies can empower an indigenous-led state. So Morales has been president for about 10 years or yeah. so, maybe a little, uh, I'm not sure. In what We all know that his rhetoric is socialist or leftist and empowering communities, but in what way does, does, it, does his rhetoric include discussions of technology or digital technology? That uh, It's increasingly part of the rhetoric, and I think that's probably because um, the Morales regime is really interested in being modern and cosmopolitan in this fusion of the kind of modern cosmopolitan rhetoric with the discourse of the indigenous, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there are many uh, further in the, on the left, I would say, who run community radio stations, who are more progressive independent journalists, who would actually be very critical of the moralist regime for not actually supporting uh, a pure form of socialism or a certain type of grassroots labor movement um, that isn't about just kind of the selling of natural gas so Morales, the Morales regime is actually more complex than indigenous socialism or leftism. It's actually a liberal regime. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's, it, it's based around, to some extent, neoliberalism, but not in the privatized space. It's more the government kind of runs and owns um, many subsidies and many organizations and, and then kind of engages in capitalism in similar ways to the ways corporations do. But, of course, where the money goes after that is very different. But as part of his plan to improve the lives of the people of Bolivia, and particularly the indigenous people, is does technology play a role? Is he, does he want technology to play a role? What role yeah. does he want? Yeah. So, so that's a great question. So increasingly, um, technologies are part of the, the rhetoric and the rollout of this, of this group. So they talk quite a bit, which is common all over the world, um, of uh, how the entire kind of nation state of Bolivia needs to be connected to the Internet. But the Internet that they speak about, and this is what's interesting, is a little bit different than the kind of globalized, increasingly globalized, you know, Google, Facebook, or perhaps the Baidu, you know, Chinese mm-hmm. um, sort of Internet. They talk about um, a free and open source software Internet, right? Sort uh-huh. of a, an Internet that has some consistencies with Linux. It's even written into their um, more recent constitution. Um, various WikiLeaks servers were actually housed on the vice president's um, servers. So this is part of this is probably symbolic populism, but they actually speak about it in these kinds of ways. Um, and they actually are setting up projects out of the government, like the Cochabamba City of Knowledge project, which is kind of dedicated toward the sharing of knowledge in communal, pro-indigenous ways. But a lot of this is still rhetoric, right? And, and, and to give them credit, this is all a very new set of developments. Uh, Morales was only recently reelected to a third term, which involved rewriting the Constitution yeah. as well. Right. That's typical South American politics. <laughs> okay, but the people of Bolivia have very basic needs. They, they're, they're concerned with infant mortality and yes. childhood disease and nutrition and environmental stresses, access to natural resources, things like that. And I'm, this is really the first I'm hearing that technology is a big part of Evo Morales' rhetoric. I'm almost impressed because with all these real pressing human needs, social needs, he still has the vision to bring his country into to some degree of modernization with technology, even though that's complete, to me, that seems completely disconnected from the immediate needs of a lot of the, the population. It's absolutely true. I mean, I think there's an understanding that through the diffusion of technology, learning can be empowered in different ways. Um, But part of it is because um, Bolivia's economy is doing really well right now. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean any fundamental restructuring of labor, but it's actually because Bolivia is one of the most mineral-rich and natural gas-rich countries in the world. 
um, the sales on these things have been have have brought a lot of money into the country, and people generally are pretty happy. Uh, he was overwhelmingly reelected. Right. Um, they're happy because um, the money is being redistributed um, more widely, and um, the economy is doing quite well in general. So, um, I think the game plan is, you know, let's be innovative at least in our discourse. Let's speak to the future. Let's be symbolic in ways that are innovative based on our own principles through some of this technology talk, or more general media talk. A lot about, there's a talk about an indigenous television station that's coming about now. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, we're doing better with some of our basic questions around education and health, right? Bolivia was recently declared um, free of illiteracy, right? Whatever that exactly means. So there's this kind of opportunity to pivot and be innovative and sort of serve as some sort of um, leadership, at least in South America. So when... You read a, a one or two sentence description of your work, or you look into what happened in the Arab Spring. People would think, "Oh, Ramesh is, is studying how Facebook helps communities," but that's not it's, uh, accurate. Boy, that's not the case at all. Yeah, I'm looking at media and technologies in context, which means you very quickly realize in, in places like Egypt, which is not necessarily the case in other parts of the world, that. You, simply using Facebook is not sufficient to bring about a social movement or a revolution, right? Um, in fact, in many cases, we call it slacktivism. People hide behind their right. computers. And, hey, I'm doing something. <laughs> exactly. And we have those kind of conversations on Twitter, which is part of the reason I don't tweet too much okay. because I don't want to get in the middle of them sometimes. It's a little bit of a navel-gazing exercise. That said, these tools, when working in synergy with other forms of organizing, um, such as you know, uses of journalism, older forms of media, labor movements, neighborhood councils, can together be actually synergistic. But kind of seeing a, a large-scale revolution solely through the lens of a kind of Western media technology is far from sufficient and in many ways continues to perpetuate a myth that our tools, uh-huh. the tools of Palo Alto, saved these peoples across the world. There's a 15-year history of protest movements out of labor in Egypt, sure. right? Cenk often does in, in, in interviews is he makes it about himself, and I criticize him for it, but <laughs> that's exactly what I'm going to do now because I want to get back to Bolivia. Sounds good. So I've spent a year there, and I loved it. I, I'd like to know, let's break down where you went to several different places. Yeah. Where did you go? What the names? What? Sure. I was, I was kind of up in the Potosi, Andean kind okay. of area, um, you know, near Uyuni and so on. Right. Um, I've spent quite a bit of time in El Alto and La Paz. La Paz is the capital. It's an amazingly beautiful place, as you know, Dave. Um, you know, the, the, the capital city, La Paz, is kind of um, this valley that's, that's kind of carved into inc- incredibly steep mountainsides. Yeah. And El Alto just flows out of La Paz into the Altiplano, you know, the, al- the high-altitude plain. Right. And it just goes almost all the way to where I also was, was the Co- Coca- um, Copacabana area near Lake Titicaca. Um, and I have, um, and I kind of briefly went to the area, the Guarani area, which is more the Amazonian area. So there's multiple um, kind of uh, major indigenous groups: the Guarani, who are Amazonians; the Quechuans, who are kind of like Neo-Incans, um, they're, they're high mountain peoples; and the Aymara, who may have been even the earliest community out there. So La Paz and El Alto are completely urbanized areas, yes. but in when you went to the Guarani area, you were. St- Spent more of your time in villages. Is That's that right. Correct? That's right. Communi- looking at community radio, which you know oh. people often don't re- don't realize that the technology that tends to kind of bring communities together and empower 
sort of people's histories and memories, but also like rally and mobilize people, often is radio to this day. The story that I've been looking at in various parts of the world is how kind of older and newer forms of media, right? Like think of technologies not as something that kind of are discontinuous, but actually have histories in older forms of media, right? Like is the iPhone a television, a radio, or a telephone? Well, it's all three and more, right? So I look at how these forms of media are coordinating with one another to generate and empower social movements. So in places like Egypt, radio, television, satellite TV, word of mouth, and of course Facebook and new, new technologies, these are all working in tandem, sometimes creating false positives, sometimes creating like a bunch of um, sort of hype, but sometimes really working together to amplify a message. So that's a lot of what motivates our conversations around like the power <coughs> of free software, because... Um, it's not simply about you know privatizing everything or making everything locked down, but you know if you know some program that you guys are making here, you really want to share it more widely. It's important at times to let people find ways to tell your story in their own ways to their own audiences, right? And right. that's kind of the power, I think, of free software in a lot of ways. Okay, so back to Bolivia. What? What were you specifically studying in the La Paz, in the urbanized area? Mainly, I was looking at a couple examples. I was looking at how um, kind of actors in the kind of constitutional IT sector in the government were talking about and imagining the role of technology in a kind of future Bolivia. So I was looking Mm -hmm. at that. I was looking at kind of urban community radio uh, projects in El Alto, which is, you know, just spilling out for like nearly 100 kilometers, I think. Right. Um, just a kind of dizzying place that, you know, kind of only comes up, I think, in our dreams and in, in ways because it's just unlike anything that I'd ever seen before. Um, and then I was also looking, and this was really interesting, at the kind of Hack Lab, the free and open source software community. And I was trying to understand how much of the vision of these different people were actually connected to the indigenous cause, the Bolivian cause, or this kind of dream of technology as a cause, right? And, I, and these are different myths we have about technology. And I was trying to understand how those different myths were informing these different communities because my goal was to stitch this all together to tell a story of a very interesting and unique country in today's world. All right, well, I want to ask you what conclusions you drew about La Paz and El Alto. But before, I want to warn the audience, you say El Alto is dreamlike. I agree with you. <laughs> To the audience, El Alto, is, the dream would be a nightmare. It is not a pretty place. It's, it's poor, first of all. It's very yeah. basic and yeah. dirty and dusty. Yeah. There's not a tree for miles. Yeah. So be careful if you're inspired by this discussion to go to, to <laughs> the beauty being, of El Alto. It's just me being odd. And, of course, I don't mean it in, in, to exoticize it. It's just, it's just a place where you feel like if you, you could walk somewhere in El Alto and you could just be lost for for days or years, it feels like. It's hard to even imagine any place in El Alto being mappable. Right. right? It just spills, and it's just this kind of uh, incredibly reproducible architecture there, um, and it just seems unending. It seems like, you know, something out of, like, a Borges story. Right. It's very interesting, but what people like to do is they like to go to a city, uh, Rome and get lost looking at Renaissance and Baroque churches. There's none of that in El Alto. You're lost looking at one no, story. Minimalism. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so what conclusions? Yeah. If did you have you come to conclusions about the use of the technology and continuing it, to work on it? Um, I'm 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 definitely convinced that um, the any time you try to nationalize any anything around technology, certain 
uh, people or communities are going to be empowered and others are going to be disempowered, right? So when you do something like an indigenous film festival or an indigenous television station, what do you mean when you mean the term indigenous? Who are you know who gets voice and who doesn't? Right. So so that's kind of a first conclusion that the nationalization of any sort of media um, conversation inherently like generates inequalities, though it might have positive overall outcomes. Um, another is the power of radio. Like radio really serves local communities in lots of ways. It's um, much cheaper, much more persistent, and that was you know something really important. And then another, which is you know true in a lot of the world when we talk about the hype of technology, that this all this conversation about you know kind of radical reinvention through open source software, you know we are hackers. It's very limited to young, upper middle class, educated, super nice and sweet, liberal minded urbanites, right? So it's it's not a conversation yet that is scaled to the level of uh, peoples and communities who are more. Um, of subsistence or agricultural based, right? And right. so I think it's important to temper, uh, not curb our digital enthusiasm, you know, temper our understandings of technology and, and really look at them in context, right? And so that's why I see the power of radio still persisting in lots of interesting ways. Okay, and in the Guarani communities, what was the, what were, were your findings or what did you observe? Some of the poorest communities in the country, um, radio is extremely prevalent. Um, definitely, um, mainly, in many ways, absent from the kind of nationalized uh, conversation around media and technology. Um, remember, the Guarani are, are, are much less present in the centers of power in this country, meaning La Paz or you know Sucre and so on. Right. Um, so, you know, or Cochabamba. Um, so the Guarani, you know, are much more understood as a kind of Amazonian people. And Amazonian peoples tend to be outside of the conversation when you're talking about what's mostly an Andean state. Right. So yeah. did you go to Cochabamba? Uh, briefly. Just briefly through. I looked at the City of Knowledge program out there, and that's so interesting. But Cochabamba is a very, like, hip, youth, liberal city. It's, the, it's a kind of place which is similar to these kind of hack labs and free and open source software I mean, in a great moment, um, these awesome Bolivian youth that I met in the kind of hacker community in La Paz, mm-hmm. um, they wanted to take pictures with me. And the reason they wanted to take pictures with me wasn't because I had worked with indigenous peoples or that because I was sort of, you know, uh, aware of uh, this, some of the subtleties of indigenous culture in Bolivia. It's because I knew Aaron Swartz, you uh-huh. know, right. who's the founder of Reddit. And they know And they know him. And so their reference points were more like kind of international and cosmopolitan and not necessarily locally focused. So at one point, they took a photo with me, and one of them said, it's a surprise, and they came out in a giant Linux penguin suit. <laughs> so it's a strange and uncanny world in which we live, and reading all of this through uh, the hype and realities of technology is just really interesting for me. Well, I love Cochabamba. I'd go back any time for any reason. Uh, and when are you, are you going to follow up on this research in Bolivia? Yeah. When you're going back? You know, I just it's just been the very beginning of this mm-hmm. project, and it's and it's and it's just fantastic because it brings together some of my work with indigenous peoples and my work on like governance and social movements, which is the stuff I was doing in Egypt. So you know, it's 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 a project. I think it's a multiple year project uh, where I'm going to just continue to go there. And my goal really is not to be a negative, to be critical in a in a constructive way. But my goal really is to kind of uh, try to figure out ways to understand how a state, 
uh, through its, its conversations and its projects that involve media and technology can truly empower people on the grassroots, can truly empower indigenous peoples who, you know, if you lump it as a category across the world, are by far the poorest peoples in the world. Give us some examples of how these technologies have empowered people in a substantive way that given them some, their community something they needed but didn't have before and were able to yeah. a- achieve because of technology. Yeah. Well, th- that's, that's a great question. I mean, a lot of the pro- I mean, I'll just speak about some of the projects that I've done, which I think I've seen some positive um, possibilities around. Um, I mean, I've worked with Native American communities in the United States, the Zuni in New Mexico, um, a group of indigenous communities that were just basically separated and, um, you know, kind of ruptured from, fragmented from one another here in Southern California, east of San Diego. Surprisingly, very, very poor communities, which people don't realize in this country, again, mm-hmm. um, that indigenous peoples are really suffering in many ways. And I was looking at how, um, not technologies off the shelf, not like using Facebook, but how could we design tools uh, that took advantage of what access they had, whatever infrastructures they have, and how, that, how could that like positively shape um, their realities. So in both these projects, I saw the opportunity for uh, technology that we designed together with the Zuni to empower their forms of storytelling to kind of reinvigorate their cultural centers, um, their sort of um, their um, indigenous oral histories. And so what we saw was the technology was not, it wasn't about using the technology, it was about the technology helping empower a conversation that people actually wanted to have about their own traditions and how they navigate their youth and kind of older generations. So we see examples like that. Or the, or the example in Southern California was we looked at the technology we designed, which we called Tribal Peace, as a way of connecting people across reservations that had long been disconnected from one another, okay. helping organize businesses, helping people digitize language, um, helping people uh, with their uh, kind of reconnection to plant and traditional medicines. So that's, those are just like things I've worked on. But generally speaking, we see examples around the world of how these tools can be repurposed to really support um, something that completely deviated from the kind of innovation moment of Silicon Valley, right? I mean, there are great examples that colleagues of mine have looked at of how in landfills in places like Africa, remember this interesting question, where do our technologies, our technologies, where do they go to die? They're sitting in landfills. Right. Right, and there are people going into those landfills and repairing and resoldering these tools and creating new tools that fit their own kind of local environments. Right, yeah. there are examples of new forms of microphones and transistors and amplifiers that are all repurposing other tools. Um, and you know, this is something you can valorize and exoticize, but there's this other hideous side of it, which is e-waste, which yeah. is also something we're looking at. Yeah. I once were, I, I used to be an environmental consultant, and I did a fascinating project in Nicaragua. And wow. one night I was there, I was out, and I met some European anthropologists. And I thought what I was doing was interesting. What they were doing was ten times more interesting. They were studying <laughs> the the communities that live in the yeah. in the landfills, and they they were hired by some big. Well, they might have gotten government grants, but that they were studying the impact. And this was 50, twenty years ago, long before the this. Yeah. That new media came along. They were studying the the impact of all of our waste on these communities and 
And but their their objective ultimately was very practical. Some company wanted to know: can we dump there or not dump there? Yeah. But out of it was going to come some interesting yeah. academic research, at least. You know, there's a big myth, Dave, that um, the internet kind of flattens the playing field, and we know on so many levels that's not true. From the very like wires of the internet, the fiber optic cables underneath the ocean, uh, there's only one major connection between the continents of South America and Africa, right? So mm. the, the infrastructure itself, the architecture of the internet is already biased to support the elites, right? Uh, but we even see that with like access to tools, like access to technologies. The rich tend to get disproportionately richer more than the poor getting disproportionately richer when they have access to these tools. So we have a very false narrative about technologies. And I think the reason why this kind of work is so interesting is it kind of allows us to understand and appreciate diverse people and diverse communities, especially in a world where I think increasingly the Internet and new technologies are increasingly taking away from the appreciation of diversity, from our filter bubbles to our uses, you know, kind of our navel-gazing social media conversations and more. You know, you, you clearly established from the beginning that you're not into 140 characters and <laughs> putting your thoughts into Twitter, but I think the audience... Could, probably wants them nugget. They want to hear how some community yeah. banded together because of their community radio and were able yeah. to get a road paved that the government was ignoring for yeah. years. Or some nugget, some yeah. tangible yeah. impact, some tangible improvement in their lives. You're right. You're right. And I kind of said it tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think it's important to use those forms of media because it's, it's important to understand, like, every form of media we use, including this one right here, is meant to engage ourselves with different kinds of audiences, right? So when I engage with Facebook, I'm not going to reach the wider world. I'm going to reach people that Facebook's algorithm decides right. it wants me to reach. Twitter is a little better than that, and your point is well taken, that it allows us to like broadcast a little more widely the things we're up to, and kind of therefore people can reach their own audiences. And we d I did see some really interesting examples in Egypt of how people use Twitter strategically to target particular journalists like yourself or Cenk, because they know that you guys can reach even wider audiences, right. right? So it's not how many people follow you, because I'm not like active on Twitter. It's not that many with me. It's who follows you, right? But my point is not so. about Twitter. It's about yeah. trying to extract from your research these nuggets so yeah. that the audience can leave with something yeah. in their stomach that they definitely some, some interesting or, or tangible examples. Yeah, and that's that, what that's what actually these books that I'm working on are about. Right in different ways. They're all about kind of grassroots ways of rethinking the internet uh, from the perspective of uh, people and communities and diversity. So these books that Ramesh is working on are coming out in a year or two. So they're a bit in the future. Surely you'll be on uh, Young Turks in some form or another that. to talk about them when they're available to the public, when they're, they've been published. In the last little part of this interview, I'd like to get back to your history because in some ways... If you have a, if someone's out there with a wanderlust, you have the greatest job in the world. You can write proposals and go anywhere you want as yeah. long as you can justify it. Uh, travel and study technology in these different communities. How does some young person in college now who has a diverse interest get to a position that you, an enviable position like the one you have? Well, I know how do you I, do it? How should they do it? <laughs> I know I sound like a hippie, but I say follow your heart. I mean, for me, it's just deeply meaningful to start to do these kinds of projects. Um, and, uh, you know, I've had students or just um, people around the world at various times reach out to me and say, how can I be involved in your projects? And uh, to that, I say, please contact me, and I'd be happy to, like, you know, 
talk with you about my experiences. Um, generally speaking, like this kind of work comes out of a couple fields that you can study in school, like uh, media studies or science and technology studies. But that said, it's really about um, looking at examples in the world, which is to your point, I should share these examples, and I'm trying to, um, and then looking at who's doing those types of examples, who are leading those examples, and then volunteering, getting in contact. I mean, I think that's a big part of um, what it takes. Um, and you're right, it's just the most interesting job in the world. I, inc- I increasingly, when I travel to different parts of the world, I get invited not by academics or journalists, though that's really cool. I get invited by communities. Like I was in- invited by the Tibetan government um, just a year and a half ago to help them, help them think about um, their security, their, their cyber security, because um, um, they, were, they were using similar types of technologies to those which protect WikiLeaks, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and helping them learn from examples like Egypt, um, you know, which in ways seems really sad and somber right now, but there's no doubting the power of that large-scale social movement, just like Occupy, right? So I think um, the idea is really following your heart, getting in contact with me, getting in contact with, um, with uh, other people that you see. Um, you can search for examples, um, doing really interesting projects, We've set up a center in the University of California that brings together like feminist studies, anthropologists, computer scientists, designers, all who are interested in the grassroots study of digital culture. Really? And does that center have classes and degrees now, or is it? We're still... working on it. You know, it's a kind of moving the boulder up the hill. You oh. know, we're trying to push that boulder up the hill to do that. Um, but ultimately, this is something that is part, I think, of our strategic goals in the UC system. Um, but I think more generally, this is like, this is a life's passion for me. Um, but was it a life's passion when you were just designing software and you weren't no, giving it this kind of No, thing? I didn't know what it meant, and I, mm-hmm. and I didn't realize that it, it could be really thought of in a different way. And that actually understanding, like, how to step away from the hype of software could actually allow us to revisit software in ways that were much more meaningful. Right. Okay. So, but you blazed your own path into this, I presume, compared to someone could come and study, uh, take your classes, and then that path is already opened for them. They just have to be good sure. and to have the initiative. But yeah. you, you are an example of blazing your own path and creating the career that really was closest to your heart, which is not exactly where you started. Yeah. I mean, you know, there were these myths. Um, there are all these myths about technology and um but they're tools right everything you know technologies are nothing but tools right and tools have different meanings based on who uses them and who designs them right and so that kind of understanding is i think the first step for people who are interested in doing this kind of work um and i think the other is um just as i can see that you had having the experience of um being in other parts of the world, volunteering, being of service, um, that is very eye-opening because um, so many of the realities we take for granted in this country, even though we're extremely diverse culturally here in Los Angeles, we still are very <coughs> insulated from these other understandings, other languages, other traditions. And I think that's what creates a lot of blocks between um, the kind of more tolerant and compassionate understanding that I feel um, this country has to have, um, and people in this country, I think, do have it on a very personal level, but it hasn't yet come out in the right way. So, for example, I was interviewed 
recently on um, on Canadian national TV to talk about the ISIS problem, problem mm-hmm. right? Right. What do we do about that? How do we think about social media and all of that? And I asked the question, why do we actually, why, why is ISIS or the Islamic State growing? Why is it appealing to youth across the world? Well, because perceived or not, or in reality, there seems to be an attack, um, you know, on on Islam, right? Whether that's uh, the truth or not. Right. And so in any time, we would choose probably our culture and our family over some sort of nebulous notion of the nation, right? Of the state, yeah. Yeah, of the state. So, you know, I think the better question should be how do we rethink um, technologies and social media in the spirit of compassion and in in a a kind of greater humanism? Um, So I know there's the kind of hippie side of what I'm doing, uh, but ultimately, it's it's about being really critical of that which is, so we can create something better. After sure, that's it. I, yeah. I got you. You know, I'm going back to Bolivia. I, yeah. I went. I loved it. I was not in the indigenous communities. I was basically in the modern Western, what you call the hip community of Col- Cochabamba. Cochabamba. Yeah, it's great. And I did go to Oruro and La Paz and Santa Cruz and a few other places. But nevertheless, even though that's roughly in our modern Western world, it's still a lot less materialistic than life in the United States. Not yeah. totally. I mean, people want fancy clothes and nice cars. Yeah. And there are a lot of rich people. Yeah. It, 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 it does, it's not like that. It's not Cuba over there. Uh, but it's a lot just... A, and all those traditions of centuries back in the indigenous community still have their slight influence in the daily and weekly and monthly and yearly routines of yeah. the, the people yeah. The, the more modern people in, in Cochabamba and other Absolutely. cities. Absolutely. It's when, a when, wonderful place. When Evo Morales was elected, the site of the sort of ceremony of his election wasn't in La Paz. It wasn't in the presidential palace. Mm-hmm. It was in Tiwanaku. Tiwanaku is uh, ancient, ancient thousands of years old Aymara kind of related ruins that are up in the Altiplano, near El Alto, kind of. I mean, well, that has tremendous symbolic value, that's right. of that's course, right. and that's thus right. he chose it. But. There's an idea in, 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 in the nation, uh, whether and we want to kind of push that idea so it's really consistent in practice, and it is true somewhat in practice, um, that kind of histories and traditions and, you know, the worship of Pachamama, right, like the mm-hmm. goddess of the earth, earth. Um, those things are important. And um, I think that's really... Um, it's something really fundamental about that, you know. And, and so I go to places like Bolivia with a great deal of appreciation and respect for that which I learned from those situations. Um, and I kind of see that in different ways in different parts of the world. Well, Dr. Ramesh Srinivasan, I, I look for, when your books come out, I look forward to either hearing you talk about it with Cenk or talking to you about it myself. That would be great. And we'll have you back on here. Thanks for coming. Oh, it's a pleasure.